Hi, this is Jill Jarris. From September 2017 through April 2020, this podcast was known as Olympic Fever. We've since changed its name to keep the flame alive, but we're committed to keeping our back catalog available to you. So please keep the name change and this disclaimer in mind as you listen to it. Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, or USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Olympic Fever podcast is strictly for informational and commentary purposes. The Olympic Fever podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC. The Olympic Fever podcast is not a sponsor of the USOPC, nor is Olympic Fever associated with or endorsed by the USOPC in any way. The content of Olympic Fever podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. So suddenly, within four years, politics and sport don't mix, and now politics and sport very much was mixing, which is very interesting. Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Oh! You can do it! You can do it! Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant! But that is an Olympic champion. Ready? Hello and welcome to another episode of Olympic Fever, the podcast for Olympics fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I was a little startled when you started. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> why. I just... I was like, oh, okay, here we are. We're ready <laughs> to go. I, should, I thought, like, with about three seconds to go, I'm like, oh, I should have given her, like, a five-second warning. <laughs> but I, I had this, so I had no, this I am, sad, I... sad, sad little uh, officiating ability to internalize what 20 seconds about feels like because uh, years of penalty box timing. <laughs> I know. So when people, I'm really bad with time and things like that. So people say, okay, just wait a few seconds. I'm like, is it now? <laughs> is it now? <laughs> this is why when I watch races and that, you know, we, we've talked so much about the timing and how long it's a hundredth of a second and all, mm -hmm. I can never tell. Oh, okay. If someone's going faster or slower than somebody else. So I'm like glued to the, so I never know who won unless it's, you know, a side by side race. Okay. So, which is probably why I get so stressed out watching all those races. Like bobsled or something like that. Oh, God, and skiing, and I just take it all so personally, and I have no internal clock, and it's very difficult. I take it all to heart. Today we have a really fun interview for you. We are talking about uh, nationality and what the Olympics means to a country's national identity. And I'm really excited because we get to branch out of our little United States bubble and talk with uh, someone from another country. And today that is Dr. Michael Warren. He is an adjunct research fellow at Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand. And he wrote his dissertation on this topic, which is called Politics and Sport Don't Mix or Do They? national identity and New Zealand's participation in the Olympic Games. So we talked about how New Zealanders view the Olympics and a lot about New Zealand's interesting history with, with the Olympic Games because for being such a small country, it's had a lot of impact on the Olympics. Take a listen. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, first off, you, you decided to research the combination of politics and sport, particularly with the Olympics. Why did you decide to do that? Because as we know, the IOC has famously said that sports and politics do not mix. Yeah, hi. It's great to be here. That's a really good question. In New Zealand, um, the intersection between sport and politics has been present throughout its history. But when thinking about sport and politics in New Zealand, most researchers taken place around the All Blacks, which is New Zealand's national rugby team, and politics, especially related to sporting activities and relationship with apartheid South Africa. So nobody had ever thought about writing about New Zealand's Olympic story and its relationship with national identity and how that is intersected with politics. And, and from somebody who has undertaken research in political science in New Zealand and is a keen sports fan, especially the Olympics, 
I thought, wow, what a great topic to look into. So when the Olympics come on in New Zealand, what what is the general reaction like? Especially summer versus winter, because you're not really known for winter sports. Yeah, exactly. Um, New Zealand's very much known as a, as a summer Olympic nation. Um, we've only ever won three medals at the Winter Olympics, and two of those were last year in Pyeongchang. In New Zealand, the build-up to the Olympics is certainly increased media hype, a lot of profiling of our competitors, medal chances. The media really like to focus on how many medals we're going to win and try and get numbers out of sports officials of, of what the target is. Sometimes that's met, sometimes it's not. But I think the other interesting thing for New Zealand, which is probably different from other audiences, is the Olympics take place overnight generally. So when the Games are held in Europe or in the United States, it's New Zealanders sitting up in the middle of the night watching. We were very lucky when Sydney came around. It was in our time zone in 2000. And next year in Tokyo, it will be a similar um, time zone. So we'll get to watch some of the events during the day rather than middle of the night. But when the Olympics are on, it does dominate the media. Front page newspapers have stories most days. There is a real focus on the medal chances, the medal race, where we're sitting in the medal tally. But yeah, like any any sporting event in New Zealand, there's, there's widespread support and interest. So in the United States, with television coverage, so much of the coverage focuses on American athletes. And sometimes we won't even see competitions that don't have American athletes with a good medal chance. So how does that play in New Zealand? Because obviously it's a, that's a very different population, different numbers. Yeah, New Zealand, I think last time, spe- uh, sent just under 200 athletes to, to the Olympics in Rio 2016. So we see a lot of our coverage of New Zealand athletes, of course, but there's more of probably a global view. So when the 100 metre final, which New Zealand does not have an athlete competing in the 100 metre final, we'll see that uh, live. But one of the, I suppose, interesting changes is, is the broadcast mix on nature of broadcasting of the Olympics in New Zealand. Sky Television, which is like a, a cable television channel, took over hosting of the Summer Olympics in 2012. So they'll have 10 or 12 cable channels dedicated to different sports, different events. And then there will be a free-to-air television option, which in New Zealand's prime television. They will generally cover New Zealand athletes as best they can, but it's not live. So there's been a real change in the mix and how the Olympics are broadcast in New Zealand. And, and my, my research you know, argues that that might not be the best thing for New Zealand as we don't see as strong a background and focus on New Zealand athletes. So from a national identity point of view and a history point of view, if we're not having a New Zealand commentators commentating New Zealand athletes, we take the international broadcast feed out of OBS. Um, if we don't have that New Zealand feel to the coverage, giving that New Zealand context to certain events, then younger New Zealanders watching may lose some of the history of New Zealand at, at the Olympics, which you know I see as a as a risk for the event in New Zealand moving forward. How so? What makes it risky? I think more the fact that you lose your history. So New Zealand has a pretty a pretty proud history at the Olympics. Take the fifteen hundred meters, for example. On the track, Jack Lovelock won the gold medal in Berlin in 1936, and then John Walker in Montreal, Peter Snell, Nick Willis more recently. And, and when the 1500 metres comes on, we don't, we don't have a New Zealander telling those stories of, of who came before. And so what younger New Zealanders do, they don't have the context, they don't have the history. So when looking at something like national identity and the Olympics' role in fostering that national identity in New Zealand, New Zealanders don't understand where we've come from. So where we are at the present, they, they just think this has all just happened and rather than actually New Zealand have always focused on, say, the 1,500 metres and it's been a proud event. So I suppose for educational purposes, for historical purposes, it is a, there is a risk that the special nature of the Olympics two New Zealanders could be lost moving forward. So obviously rugby is huge in New Zealand. Yes. The, 1500, the 1500, there's a long history. What other events and, and are touchstones for New Zealanders? 
Yeah, I think I think in terms of our, our medal winning history, I think yachting is, is or sailing is, is a big one for New Zealand. Rowing is another one, sport that New Zealand traditionally has done very well. I think since 2000, every Olympics we've won a gold medal in, one event or another in rowing. Shot put more recently has become quite a quite a dominant sport for New Zealand in athletics with Valerie Adams and, and now Tom Walsh, um, who won bronze in Rio and is one of the furthest throwers in the world currently. And then other other sports that have shone through at different times, swimming in the 1990s with Daniel Loder at Atlanta, two gold medals. Cycling is another event, track cycling, where New Zealand has done very well recently. But New Zealand's, I suppose, performance at the Olympics has is, is grown quite strongly over recent Olympics, from, 14, uh, from just four medals in Sydney in 2000 to 18 medals in Rio. So there's been a real emphasis by, I suppose, government investment into high-performance sport and has turned itself into some pretty impressive results for New Zealand. In seeing those results, what's what's the general population feel like over over time? Uh, we'll we'll talk. I, I do want to talk about the Sydney two thousand Olympics mm-hmm. in a little bit, but the it's the that investment by the government to the grant uh, monies to athletes to give them better training, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so when you see that play out in results, and maybe the general public may or may not tie. The government money to better results but does it create a, a better sense of well-being or like pride in country and nation for it's, that it's, yeah it's a, it's a really interesting question because it's very hard to quantify you know what what winning an olympic medal does for the for the wider population and other some people will tell you it, it inspires young people to go out and play more sport be more active the the the, the raw research on that is is a little bit fuzzy um, but what you see is, is when the Olympics come round, New Zealanders are completely enthralled by and large in it. Some of the research data I had was very high numbers of New Zealanders feel pride in our Olymp- Olympians' performance. So all of those things mixed in together, the government has, has made a conscious decision after Sydney with the poor performance and the media media spotlight on that poor, poor performance to increase investment and at every games, more medals have been won than the previous games. And every games, the media like to focus on how many medals per investment. And to date, I haven't seen any widespread negativity towards that increased investment. It's generally New Zealand has finished this position on the medal table, and this is a great result for little old New Zealand. One of, one of the interesting things New Zealanders like to pride themselves is, as being the, the, the underdog or David versus Goliath. And, and when they come out and can, can beat, say, the United States in a final and at the Olympics or, or our Australian cousins from across the Tasman, it's a big thing for New Zealand. And, and New Zealanders feel good when, when we get a victory like that because it doesn't happen on the world stage very often. When Jill and I were playing this interview and I'm reading all these things about New Zealand, what I thought was very funny when Americans were asked, what did they know about New Zealand? The two things that they said was, isn't that a part of Australia? Which I know (laughs) is just making you cry. And two was the filming of the Lord of the Rings movies. Yes, yes. So when you are on that world stage, it's such a different experience from us as Americans. Because it is, it's a small country with a small population. Absolutely, we have less than five million people here. So, so when New Zealand is, New Zealand goes out as a country and can win eighteen medals, you know, New Zealanders do feel a lot of pride in that, and there is a lot of media attention. And and you take a step back and you look at the Olympic Games as as a sporting event. It's every four years, so for a vast majority of that period. It's out of sight and out of mind for New Zealanders. We get news updates on our news that the rowing team went to the world champs and did this and did that. But when the Olympic, Olympic Games come around, it, it's a big event for New Zealand. And of course, it's, it's a big event for a lot of countries. There's a lot of intense media interest in it. That's because there's a lot of intense interest by ordinary New Zealanders and, and, and people around the world. They like to watch the event the drama, sport, you know, it's a mix of entertainment as well. But yes, you're right. Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit are are big in the minds of Americans and and, and I'd argue sheep as well. People think New Zealand has a lot of sheep. 
it's interesting when when we talk about New Zealand being such a small country, but when you look at the history of the Olympics, New Zealand has actually played a big role in some of the controversy, particularly in Montreal 76, triggering a boycott. So talk to us about that and what you found in your research, especially how people at the time thought about the boycott against them. Yeah, it's interesting because you talk about talk to an ordinary New Zealander about our Olympic history and, and they'll focus on the medal results and, and who won what and when and where they were when they saw that. But there have been moments in New Zealand's Olympic history where we've been at the centre of controversy and, and of course one of those was in 1976 in, in, in Montreal. And just prior to those Olympic Games, an all-black rugby team went to South Africa for a tour and there was intense pressure for the New Zealand Prime Minister, Robert Muldoon, at the time, who was newly elected in 1975, to call off the tour of the All Blacks to South Africa. And he famously said sport and politics don't mix and he would not get involved. And so in the lead up to Montreal, of course, led by Tanzania and and some of the African nations, decided that they would take a stand and, and boycott if New Zealand's participation in Montreal was to continue due to sporting contacts with South Africa. And so it was, a, it was a really interesting time in New Zealand's Olympic history because rugby, of course, in 1976 was not an Olympic sport. And so in the end, the IOC said, well, the government have not come out and endorsed the tour of South Africa by the All Blacks, but they couldn't intervene because rugby was not an Olympic sport. So in the end, New Zealand stayed and... As we now know, over 20 African nations decided that they were going to boycott. And it was interesting in some of my interviews um, for my research, I undertook around 30 interviews, but several of them were with broadcast media who were who were there commentating in Montreal. And there was a lot of pushback by Canadians to New Zealanders during that time, so much so that some of the commentators actually went around Montreal saying that, oh, no, we're here from Australian media, we're not New Zealanders which is very interesting because I I doubt there are too many examples out there where a New Zealander from the broadcast media would have said they're Australians. Such was the negativity towards New Zealand that that boycott took place because ultimately the schedule in Montreal was thrown upended. I think I read somewhere there were multiple first-round boxing matches had to be cancelled. Some of the the team sporting events had to be cancelled because... There was no African representative team there, so some of the pool matches were cancelled, and that that meant mon- that 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 meant tickets had to be refunded. So that cost organisers quite a lot of money, and so it was it was an interesting time. And, and reviewing media back here in New Zealand, I suppose New Zealand was a little bit naive to the risk to New Zealand's reputation in the in the world stage that that boycott had. The media sort of took the stance very much that well. Rugby's not an Olympic sport. Politics and sport don't mix. The Prime Minister's right. And with New Zealand, our Olympians have done nothing wrong. And so let's get on and play sport. But that was a painful time for New Zealand. And and, and that whole era between the 1970s and 1980s, our sporting contact with apartheid South Africa came and brought issues to New Zealand multiple times. And, and in 1981, for example, um, the South African rugby team toured New Zealand and again Prime Minister Muldoon refused to stop the tour and there was mass protests in New Zealand throughout that tour, a game in Hamilton between Waikato which is a local regional team and the South African rugby team had to be cancelled after there was a crowd invasion and nails were thrown on the field and so it was was quite a dark time for New Zealand during that era. Was that just Part of that was simply because rugby was so popular in both in both South Africa, and yeah, and obviously New Zealand. Absolutely, there was there's a long-standing history of, of of rugby relationships between New Zealand and South Africa, and it was known that they were the two best teams in the world, and it was the ultimate sporting contest. And South Africa and apartheid South Africa, the white population was very much rugby dominant, and and so as the world turn the lights off in terms of relationships with the apartheid regime. Rugby was one of the last avenues where they were able to get out and compete against other nations. And, and it happened to be the All Blacks were the best team in the world 
and they wanted to play us. And, and so sporting relations with South Africa brought many, I suppose, political issues for successive governments here in New Zealand. Another interesting aspect is that Montreal 1976 bled into Moscow 1980. And we in the U.S. led a boycott of the Soviet Games, but New Zealand had a very interesting take on it instead. So talk to us a little bit about that. It's funny in the the U.S. where we put some heavy pressure on all of our allies to join us in this boycott for governmental reasons but you know you're you're also talking about hurting athletes so what what, talk to us about New Zealand's take on that whole issue yeah New Zealand in the lead up to Moscow was was fascinating a team of I think 97 athletes was originally selected to to go to to Moscow and our government led by Robert Muldoon again, again came out in support of the American led boycott so suddenly within four years politics and sport don't mix and now politics and sport very much was mixing which was very interesting. But what, what happened is, of course, the New Zealand Olympic and Commonwealth Games Association at the time were independent of government. And so they spent a lot of time debating whether or not they should send the team. And in the end, I believe it was a narrow vote that they would send the team, but it was left up to individual sport federations to decide whether they would send athletes. So the government put huge pressure on those sporting federations. Any funding that was going into sports would be cut if they still sent the team to Moscow. Any public servants, people working in, in, in as school teachers, any paid government jobs, any of those athletes, if they decided to go, they were threatened that they would may not have a job when they returned. So their annual leave entitlements would run out while they were away competing in Moscow, so they wouldn't have a job to come back to. The New Zealand Embassy in Moscow was ordered not to provide any diplomatic support to New Zealand, its its team, its officials. So in the end, the closer we got to the Games, sports decided to pull out. So we had the rowers pull out, who were world champions, um, European champions in the eights in 1979. Our hockey team pulled out, who were gold medalists in, Mon- in Montreal in 1976. Our athletics team, our swim team. So in the end, we got down to to four athletes, three canoeists and a modern pentathlete who were not receiving funding by the government or any government organisations. And they thought, well, actually, we've spent four years training for this. We've spent a long time building up to this. We're going to Moscow. And so we sent our smallest team since 1920 to the Olympic Games in Moscow and we didn't win any medals, of course. It was a fraught build-up for those athletes. And it's really interesting because if you go back to the footage and you look at the opening ceremony and, and the New Zealand flag that, that we walked in on, it wasn't the New Zealand flag. We walked under the, the flag of the New Zealand Olympic and Commonwealth Games Association. So we didn't even have our own flag at the opening ceremony. So that was a painful time for those athletes. And in the end, the Games went ahead. Some countries stayed home, but who really benefited from that and who lost? Well, the athletes lost. They lost their chance to compete. And and it wasn't until 2010 where actually the government and the New Zealand Olympic Committee did a 30-year reunion for those athletes who would have gone and, and they were recognised in New Zealand as Olympians. But there was a lot of anger by those athletes and their families. And I remember seeing some, some interviews at the time and, and subsequently one of the swimmers' mother Jean Stewart, who actually won a bronze medal in Helsinki in 1952, her son, Anthony, um, Gary Hurring, his name was, he was a, a swimmer and he went to Los Angeles and, and won to, uh, finished fourth and fifth in two events in 1984, but he was a real medal opportunity and she was angry even 30, 20 years, 30 years later that he was denied the chance. So it built up a lot of anger and, you know, the government at the time were complete hypocrites, really. They were happy on one debate to say sport and politics don't mix, but yet when the boycott in 1980 come along and the US government started putting pressure on on other governments like New Zealand, we were happy to let politics and sport mix. Oh, hypocritical politicians, something we (laughs) share. (laughs) Did the athletes who went face backlash when they came back? Yeah, so that, that was also very interesting. And they announced early that they were going to continue on and go to Moscow. Um, 
there was a lot of fear out there. They they received threats, telephone threats, in the lead up before they left. The athletes, and not only those athletes that went, some other athletes were, were extremely fearful. I remember seeing a story that one was so concerned that he had a parcel arrive at his home, and he thought it was suspicious and suspicious and thought it might have been a bomb and had it blown up, only to find out later that it was his team uniform arriving. <sighs> so. There was a lot of backlash, but also a lot of support. You know, there were the people out there saying, you know, this is the Olympics. Sport and politics don't mix. You shouldn't get involved here. Go out and compete for your country. And so, again, it was one of these events where it was quite a polarising effect where some agreed with the boycott, others did not agree with the boycott. So there were were a lot of threats going to those athletes. And, and from what I've read and seen as, as it was a very tough time for them and their families also for taking the stance to go to, to Moscow. And and in all intents and purposes, they went to Moscow and, and they enjoyed it. It was a great experience. And and But for New Zealanders back home, Television New Zealand, who was the host broadcaster, didn't cover those games. By and large, those games didn't exist to New Zealanders. And, and again, it was the athletes that suffered the most. What then was the reaction in New Zealand to the 1984 boycott? Because, of course, that wouldn't affect them, but you still have those lingering feelings from 1980. I think it's quite interesting, really, because New Zealanders in 1984, by and large, hadn't seen an Olympics for eight years. So they were it was huge coverage in the lead-up, and, and it was interesting. I was just reviewing some of my archives the other week, and and some of the, the, the newspaper coverage that I've got and, and lead-up coverage, it was dominated in the papers for weeks before the games, profiling athletes and and real excitement. But in terms of the boycott, I think it was kind of played here that, you know, it's just a Russian retaliation for nothing. You know, there was still 1980. It was a principal decision because of the Soviet Union's invasion of Afghanistan, and and, and there was a reason behind it, but... 1984, they thought, well, all of this is just a, a tit-for-tat boycott, a retaliation by the Soviets, and, and come on, let's move on and get on and play sport. So there were some really interesting debates um, or, or coverage at the time, and, and one boycott was deemed more worthy than another. But New Zealanders went to Los Angeles, and, and it was, you know, despite the boycott of the Eastern Bloc nations, they had its most successful games, eight gold medals. So uh, the, as soon as the game started... The boycott, any coverage of the boycott certainly dissipated here. It was about these remarkable results of a few New Zealanders getting out there and doing well in Los Angeles. So then you you take that 1984 and, although it's a decades later, Sydney 2000, which would have been, a, you would anticipate that it would be a great game for New Zealand because it's as close to home as you're going to get, but disaster Absolutely. In 1993, when Sydney got the right, won the right to host the Olympic Games, it was a pretty close race over Beijing. There was huge media coverage in New Zealand about the opportunities that Sydney hosting the Olympics would bring to New Zealand, not only just through Olympic performance, but also economic output, increased tourists to the region, potentially attracting some nations to, to bring their teams here prior to the Olympics to, to have their build up here, to acclimatise. And even the government put out a strategy, a Sydney 2000 strategy, to attract this kind of investment into New Zealand. And as the Games approached, there was real excitement here that it was going to be a really good result for New Zealand. It's close as we were ever going to have to a home Olympics. You know, it's a three-hour flight from Auckland to, to Sydney, so it's as close as we're ever going to get. And the government started increasing expended, or investment into high-performance sport but it was still at a very low level. We were sort of relying on the fact that it was close to home and we'd done well in previous Olympics in 1984, 1988, 1992. We'd won more than 10 medals at the Olympics. They were our best results ever. In 1996 in Atlanta, we only won six medals. And, and so there was, I suppose, a decline sort of starting as other countries were really boosting their investment into high-performance sport. The Australians had done it after the Montreal Olympics when they failed to win a single gold medal. The Canadians also um, revamped their high-performance sports system. So some of these countries had had 15 years of, of increased investment in sport. The playing field was getting tougher as more countries were becoming interested in investing. 
But New Zealand, I think we rocked up into Sydney with 151 athletes, thinking, yep, we're going we're gonna to have a really good games here. And, and the media interest, the media coverage here in New Zealand of those games was huge. The build-up was huge. There was documentaries. It was dominating our news, I think. Our 6 o'clock news, which is our main news bulletin, was hosted out of Sydney for those two weeks. Another show, which was called The Home Show at the time, which was like a, a half-hour interview program directly after the news, they based themselves out of Sydney, and it was massive. And then the games began, and, and perceived medal chances that we thought we had fell away, and in the end it was one gold medal, and that was in rowing to Rob Waddell and the, the men's single skulls, and then three bronze was, was all New Zealand would have, and so that was deemed a complete disaster for New Zealand, and... The media coverage was scathing back home. Yes, there was some bad luck to some athletes, and that happens at every Olympics. Somebody who was meant to win a medal, something happens, they get injured, or they just don't turn up on the day. But it seemed to have been multiple chances just fell away like that. For example, I think our equestrian team was sitting in third place after the cross-country with the show jumping to come, and, and the vets inspection came the morning of the show jumping and two of our horses were deemed unfit to compete and so the team were were relegated from competition so there was a medal chance um our, our sailing team which is was world class was expected to do really well in sydney harbour if the wind blew which it traditionally blew at that time of the year in sydney the wind didn't blow so our yachties that had spent four years training in sydney understanding the conditions the conditions were not what they were meant to be for the previous four years. So there were some unlucky chances. But what they, those games actually did was to focus New Zealanders and the New Zealand government's minds on, you know, where do we see ourselves in high-performance sport? Is this something that's important to New Zealand as a nation? You know, we're a relatively young nation, and our sporting history has built up over time to be a huge part of our our identity and who we perceive we are through the All Blacks, through me, through Olympic performance like Peter Snell, Murray Halberg, Jack Lovelock, and also through events like the America's Cup. And in 1995, Team New Zealand won the America's Cup off, off Team Dennis Connor or San Diego. And there was a huge moment for New Zealand, the real underdog beating the United States in their home ground. And so what took place... Um, around that time was a review into perform high-performance sport in New Zealand, and, and it was a government-led review which completely changed the sporting landscape of New Zealand. Spark, which was Sport and Recreation New Zealand, was formed, and, and a whole lot more money started going into high-performance sport. And so it was a real catalyst moment for New Zealand, and arguably the performances that we, that we see now at the Olympics are down to the disappointment of Sydney because... It really focused the minds, and politicians love to be associated with winners. And so when our team goes off to the Olympics and does really well, and they come home for a welcome home celebration, the Prime Minister is always there to welcome them. And so it helps the image of the politicians, so that's a good thing as well in their minds. So it comes back to politics as well. <laughs> So is the run-up to Tokyo already starting in your media and are people talking about it? Yeah, so it's it's pre-Olympic year, um, of course, and so we're starting to see and hear about athletes qualifying for the Olympics. I think there's 44 athletes already qualified. Just this week, our women's sevens team have um, won the World Series and have been qualified our team for Tokyo. So those that's already been reported in our media and as the year continues and more athletes qualify, that media interest will continue to grow and, and the public's interest as well. And also the New Zealand Olympic Committee do a great job in out of Olympic competition years of, of reporting on social media results of our Olympians who are out competing at World Cups or World Championship events. And I know, I think the Olympic New Zealand Olympic Committee's Facebook page has several million followers and, and quite a high impact right here in New Zealand so the interest will be building as more athletes qualify and, and then the media will start talking about well who's going to be our medal winning our medal chances and, and things like that so that's very much where the interest will go to as the build up to Tokyo continues is who's going to bring home a medal. I was just going to ask about Earn the Fern which yes. I keep seeing 
in a lot of the NDOC reports. And what is that exactly? Yeah, so a big part of New Zealand's identity or a part of any country's identity is symbols and, 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 and one of ours is the silver fern, which is a plant. And if you look at the New Zealand Olympic Committee logo, it's got the Olympic rings with a silver fern. And throughout New Zealand's Olympic history, it's been the black uniform with a silver fern on it. And so that really resonates with New Zealanders. On all of our sporting teams that go away, the silver fern is there. And so part of their marketing strategy is to, to intertwine that sense of national identity, sense of history to the present. And so earn the fern is, is sort of, I suppose, the social media hashtag that they've employed to earn the fern, to, to get qualified, to get to the Olympics. And, and it's linking New Zealand's history at the Olympic Games to, to the present, something that every New Zealander knows is, is the silver fern. Really, it's a smart and savvy thing that the Olympic Committee have done by, by linking those two things. But earn the fern and the silver fern is very much part of mainstay New Zealand society. I have a quick rugby question, because if people watch rugby in general, they know that the All Blacks are known to do hakas before every match. But in Rio, I, they even said this on American television, that New Zealand would not do a haka unless they got into the finals. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, I think it was, I think it was if, if New Zealand won a medal, then they'd do a haka. Okay. Yes. Talk to us a little bit about that tradition and if we end up seeing it at the games, what, what it yeah. means. So New Zealand's indigenous population here is the Maori. So in 1840, the British Crown signed the Treaty of Waitangi with, with local Maori. And so part of our history is being the biculturalism between Maori and the English settler population. And so after the 2000 Olympic Games in Sydney, the New Zealand Olympic Committee also really strengthened the cultural aspect of the New Zealand team. So the one team, one spirit initiative came into play. And so it's not just the haka that you will see at the Olympic Games. When New Zealand walks into the opening ceremony, the flag bearer will be wearing a kakahu, which is a, a cloak, a traditional Maori cloak that they will be donned and will wear. And that's a sign of mana and mana means strength and leadership. And so our flag bearer at every Olympics since 2004, I believe, has worn that cloak. And so that's a real symbol of, of the strengths between our cultural history and cultural identity and the Olympic team. And not only that, is every member of the New Zealand Olympic team will be presented with a ponamu, a green stone necklace, representing the link between Ngaitahu, which is one of our Maori iwis down from the south southern part of New Zealand, and the New Zealand Olympic team to bind them to home. And then, of course, there's the haka, which is a Maori war dance, and so you see that before every All Black Test match. When they're playing another country, you'll see a haka. Um, and you'll also see a haka at the Olympic Games, multiple occasions during the Games, when the team is welcomed into the Olympic Village. As sports arrive in the build-up, they will be received and welcomed through a haka. And also, if, if an athlete wins a, a medal, there'll be a haka upon return to the Olympic Village, but also by New Zealanders in the stadium. And I remember one athlete, Sarah Alma, in Athens in 2004, she won the 3,000 metre individual pursuit um, in track cycling. And, and one of the things she talks about is being presented with her medal and then hearing up in the stands a number of New Zealand supporters undertaking a haka after the medal ceremony. And that's, for her, was one of her fondest memories about that medal ceremony was actually hearing that haka and what it meant to her as, as a New Zealander. And, and it's, it's, it's another thing the Olympic Committee has done really well is, is fostering and bringing into the team the cultural identity of New Zealand. And that one team, one spirit is, is very much a way that can bind Olympians who come in from very different sports. You've got rowers, you've got canoeists, you've got cyclists, triathletes coming in who, who have competed independently of each other for the four years previous, they come into the Olympic Village and they're teammates and they don't know each other, but what binds them is is that cultural identity. And so what the Olympic Committee have done around that initiative has been quite strong and has had, from what I've seen in research, quite widespread positive feedback of athletes that it actually helps boost their competition performance because they do see themselves as part of a wider team and, and that is New Zealand, Team New Zealand. And so it is the cultural identity aspect of that that binds them together.
Well, Michael, thank you so much. We'll put a, a link to where people can read your dissertation because it's good reading. I will say that. And um, we really appreciate you coming on the show. And now I feel even more connected to New Zealand and I'm looking forward to rooting for them in the next games. Well, let's talk again at Tokyo. Sounds oh, great. Yes, yeah. definitely, definitely. All right, thank you. Thank you so much, Michael. And thank you for joining Team Olympic Fever as our Kiwi correspondent. We hope to have you back on again to uh, give us some more perspective from around the world. You can follow Michael on Twitter at Warren, M-I-C-H, the number one. And we'll have a link to that in our show notes. And, you know, if you're on Twitter and you go to Olympic Fever, we have a list actually of our Team Olympic Fever members. So you can just subscribe to that and you'd constantly get the updates on what's going on with our Team Olympic Fever. Um, we'll also put up a link to his dissertation in our show notes. It is a very good read and you can learn more about New Zealand at Montreal 1976, Moscow 1980, and Sydney 2000, among other Wasn't things. Wasn't it a surprise how such a small country had such a big influence on those big all those controversies in you know 76 and 80 and i know it just when i was reading his dissertation which was it's really good i really enjoyed reading it because it's it reads like a book it doesn't i agree it's it does read like a book and i hope he's able to get it published someday yeah when you really thought about like wow this very small country has a really big impact and when they win medals it's got to be a huge thing you know, we're a big country and like America, we are just used to being on top of the medal count. So I don't know. I mean, I did spend time yesterday looking at hakas and that kind of thing. I, I just think that the, one of the things that really struck me was the cultural symbolism they've integrated to their team. Yes. And that was really cool, I thought. And so, so we'll we'll post some of the the most dramatic hakas right. you found. Yeah, I know, and they make me cry because I don't know why the haka make me a haka makes me very emotional. And I've never seen one in person, so now when I go to Tokyo, I'm hoping to stalk some uh, stalk some New Zealanders. <laughs> Show me your haka. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that sounded really creepy. Well, you know, last week we talked about having members of the Taiwanese. Olympic team on our fantasy team. Right. So we would really cheer for them because right. we want free pearl tea. Now we need some Kiwis on our team because we want to see some hakas. Right. And now I, it's like, okay, I should figure out which events to go to where a New Zealander could medal. And then maybe Rugby? in the audience. Yes, that might, that might happen because they're good in that. So maybe and some rowing or might... canoeing. And certainly rugby would be what they want. If they're yes. going to pick the medal, right. they're oh going to pick the rugby you, medal. I, they would go crazy. It would be yeah. so exciting. And I bet there would be a decent number of New Zealanders there. Yeah, cause it's, because it's relatively close, right. all things speaking. They're at least in a similar time zone, which has got to right. be nice for them. Man, I got to tell you, though, I do have my own New Zealand Olympic story. Okay. Which, no, okay. you have been. Right? I have been to New Zealand. I've been very lucky. Um, I was a WFTDA officiating instructor for roller derby for a good five, six years. And so my very first clinic that I was sent to was Australia and New Zealand. So nice. I know, right? So my very first clinic, I fly to Auckland. And the clinic we had was in this beautiful government facility, this recreational facility that was giant. It had workout room it had these this huge court thing that could be or a huge big open room that could be divided into multiple basketball court size courts so there were just lots of different groups practicing sports of different kinds the and then we were up in some meeting rooms doing our clinic stuff and then uh on the second day we would be down on the courts because we'd have a scrimmage thing and so like saturday it was all surreal because i'm in new zealand first off didn't know that i'd ever get to go there Crosby, Stills, and Nash is doing a sound check because they're having a concert there that night. <laughs> and outside is a full track. And it happens to be the same weekend that is the uh, Olympic trials for track and field. Seriously? Yes. So it was so hard to be like, I got to teach, but I want to stare out the window. 
And every break, it was just like plastered against the window, watching what was going on. And, they, you know, you had different meets and they had hammer throw going on in one corner because they had like a throwing area that was a little separate from the track. And they'd have races and you'd watch the officials and see what they were doing. And, you know, we had to have whistle practice for us. So we'd go outside and hope that our whistles weren't annoying. But it was really so was, cool. So was this 2012? 2012. It was okay. So, oh, yeah, for yeah. London. So, yeah, it was it was really cool. I don't remember too much. Like, I didn't know very many details, but it was just neat to be able to see the setup and see the what competitions you could. We, we want to give a shout out to our Patreon patrons. Uh, we have some bonus content with Dr. Warren coming up, and you can catch that on Patreon site. If you want to get in on that action, we would love to have you as one of our patrons. We, you can find us at patreon.com slash olimfever. And we'd also love to hear what you think of this interview. You can email us at info at olimfever.com or call our voicemail line at 530-70-FEVER. We love hearing from you. It's been nice to, to get some feedback and interact with the listeners a bit and find out where they're from. I know. I like that. It makes my whole day. I know I've said that before. Yeah, but I it know. Really it, does. it does, but it also helps to know where people are coming from because then we can say, oh, wait, we have listeners here. Let's try to get something close to them or talk about things that they might be interested in as well. Absolutely. So let us know. Um, moving on to our Team Olympic Fever update. Our Team Olympic Fever snowboard crosser, Alex Diebold, has started his own podcast, and it is called The Alex Diebold Show. He has described it as having conversations with interesting people from interesting places all over the world. Though not an interesting title. (laughs) I'm sure. I haven't listened to it yet. I'm sure it's great. You know what? It it might be. Well, I listened to a little bit of the introduction because I do love his voice. I mean, he does have a really good voice. And I haven't had time to get to the first episode because he's got like a short little intro episode. And then the first interview is up as well. Maybe should have been Alex Diebold's interesting show. There you go. All right, Alex, if you're listening, we got ideas. This weekend, our artistic swimmer, Jacqueline Simino, will be competing in Greensboro, North Carolina, in another FINA World Cup event, and she'll be in the solo and duet categories. And then our modern pentathlete, Samantha Achterberg, is competing in Prague this weekend in another UIPM World Cup event. Very exciting weekend. I know. Hope they all do well. I know. And, and this way, Jacqueline, because she knows she's going to clean up again like she did in Beijing, she can just drive those things home. Right. I if they'll stop her at the border. <laughs> we detect that your car is unusually heavy. <laughs> and it's definitely not her. She's just a tiny little thing. Moving on to some news from Pyeongchang 2018. Hey, guess what? The oh, legacy no. plans for three of the venues are delayed until the end of the year. So there is a Pyeongchang 2018 Legacy Foundation, which happened to be created just this year. And they're trying to figure out legacy plans for the Alpensia Sliding Center, the Gangneung Hockey Center, and the Gangneung Oval. And so those plans are up in the air, which it has to be frustrating for the IOC. I'm sure it's kind of frustrating for Korea, too, but... Oh. That that upsets me. It's kind of surprising to think you knew this was coming. You knew that one day the games would be over and you had these big venues to do something with. What do you think's going to happen? Yeah, let's just keep our fingers crossed on this one and give it some time. Because as we learned from talking to Matt, our sustainability guy, sometimes the legacy things take several years that is true. to come through and to show up so let's not jump the gun on pyeongchang we're only a year out right and hopefully they can come up with something sustainable by the end of the year i'm sure the ioc is not too thrilled with them but uh, they can probably make it happen they made a beautiful games happen i think they can probably pull this pull this off too yeah moving on to some tokyo 2020 news (laughs) sf gate which is a publication out of san francisco is reporting that applications for the Olympic Village condominium units are going to be opening up at the end of July. So once they're done with the village, those will turn into condos. But you have to apply for them now? Yeah, I guess so. 
Oh, well, yeah, housing in in Tokyo is very tight. Well, yeah, but it, it's, it was interesting because this is going to be, let's see, the Athletes Village is twenty going to be 24 buildings, and they're going to have wow. um, fifty just over 5,600 units in those buildings, and 4,145 of them are going to be sold. Huh. I don't know what's going to happen to the rest. But they did say, like, oh, that's about as much as a quarter of the total units on the, the Tokyo real estate market. So wow. this could attract the prices of condominiums. But these things, they're going to go for from about $454,000 to about a little over $900,000 when you when you did the conversion. Of the- Which is not bad for a city condo at right? all. Right, and these are actually going to be a little bit bigger than your average condo. I guess apartments in Japan are tend to be smaller because there are so many people. So these are going to be a little bit larger and have taller ceilings as well. So it'll be interesting to see how yeah, um, that how these sounds sell. like a good deal. I mean, because if you compare it to say New York or right. San Francisco, right? I mean, four hundred and fifty thousand to nine hundred thousand is really good. I mean, obviously, if you're in smaller markets, that sounds outrageous. But a right. million dollars for a condo in New York City is not that strange, right? And so. not that fancy. Hey, don't forget to pick up our next book club book, Making Waves, My Journey to Winning Olympic Gold and Defeating the East German Doping Program by Shirley Babishoff with Chris Epting. And if you go through our website and purchase it on Amazon.com, we'll get a little commission, which helps us support the show. Have you got it? My copy is on the way. So I'm very excited. I'm excited about this book because I do love swimming and I do love watching swimming and I hate doping. So... Oh, and and we do have a a trigger warning. Um, Listener Meredith alerted us to the fact that there's some mentions right away in chapter one of abuse. So be on if that's a concern for you, be on the lookout for that and maybe skip that chapter. On that note, uh, we'll wrap it up for this week and we will catch you back here next week for more Olympic stories. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. Stay in touch. Email us at olymfever at gmail.com. That's O-L-Y-M fever at gmail. You can also leave us a voicemail at 530-763-3837. That's 530-70-FEVER. We're on Twitter at olymfever, and you can join in the conversation at our Facebook group, Olympic Fever Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive.